Please take your Bibles with me this evening and turn to Luke 17. Luke 17, verses 11 through 19 this evening. Title of the message, The Stranger's Thanks. We come to an account this evening of unique character and value. It subsists somewhere between a warning about the nature of prayer and an opportunity for us to take another step in our Christian lives, a next step in our faith. In just a couple of weeks, we are going to have Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is upon us quite quickly. We'll consider at this time the many ways in which we can all be thankful, and we should all be thankful, the many times for which we ought to be thankful, the blessings that we all have. And tonight, we get a little bit of a primer for this reminder in the form of a Samaritan leper, a stranger. In Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 11, the Bible says this, and it came to pass as he went, that would be Jesus, to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. So Jesus is still on his way to Jerusalem. Now, we know that as far back as Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem. That was a long time ago. We're in Luke 17. That was Luke 9. That was a long time ago now that we were in Luke 9. Jesus had set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. Now, much has happened since that time, but Jesus Jesus' mind is still fixed in his purpose. He is still on his way toward that end. And as he goes along his way, the Bible says that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Now, Galilee, that's no surprise. Indeed, the majority of Jesus' ministry was in Galilee, right? It's where he was from. It's where they ministered around the Sea of Galilee. Many, many of the things that Jesus did was around Galilee. Samaria is no surprise for Jesus because as uh, very early on, even in his ministry, Jesus was going through Samaria. However, for a Jewish person, it was always startling to hear about Samaria, right? Because the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Now, remember back in Luke chapter 9, I I just read you uh, chapter 9, verse 51, at least in part, I summarized it, where Jesus set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. And in Luke 9, 52, the next verse, the Bible says that Jesus sent his disciples into Samaria before him to preach the gospel and to prepare them, to prepare the cities there, for Jesus's ministry. Jesus, this is not the first time he had done that, right? He had done that into Galilee as well, where they preached and and they'd gone from city to city doing so. Uh, In this case, Jesus sent them to Samaria to prepare them for him. And if you recall, they did not receive these Jewish disciples uh, with much pleasure. So much so that James and John, in returning, asked Jesus, if they should call down fire from heaven like Elijah and consume those wicked unbelievers, if you recall, uh, in, in Luke 9, verses 55 and 56, uh, Jesus responded to them when they asked if they should call down fire like Elijah from heaven. And he said this, he said, ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of, for the son of man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village, right? They moved on. Uh, we're not, we're not calling down any fire from heaven today, James, John. Um, let's, uh, maybe that's why they were called the sons of thunder. I don't know. But um, 
For one reason or another, they were ready to see some people cooked on that day. Some Samaritans particularly, right? Uh, And little wonder that with them being Jews and Samaritans and whatnot. But Jesus says, we did not come to destroy men's lives. That's not what we're doing here. We're here to save men's lives. Now, we don't know exactly where Jesus is along this journey. We don't know if he's in Galilee. We don't know if he's in Samaria. For all we know, he could be in Judea, having headed down you know, that direction. But what we do know is found in verse 12. The Bible says this, And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. So Jesus enters into a certain village along the path. He's going through um, Samaria, Galilee, somewhere, and he goes, he's entering a certain village, and he sees ten men afar off who were lepers. They would certainly not have been in the village because lepers were not allowed in any village or in any anywhere around people at that time in history. When you were diagnosed with this infection of leprosy, you became an immediate outcast of society uh, as this infection is contagious. Now, in our age today with medicine and such, we recognize it's only mildly contagious. It's not heavily contagious, but it's, it's, not, it's not communicable um, by uh, breath and such. It's more of a bodily fluid type communication from person to person. We have, however, spoken before of what the horrors of what leprosy was, particularly in the past. It's a long-term infection. It begins without symptoms and can remain as an incubation period in the body of a host for years, if not decades. As it begins to manifest itself, one will see open sores that do not heal, and they will eventually begin eating the flesh, and they can mangle and disfigure a person. It causes major nerve damage in the arms, the legs, the skin, the appendages and such. Now today we mentioned leprosy is a curable ailment if it's caught fairly early on. In that day, it was incurable, contagious, and would progressively eat away at a person's body until they were consumed and killed. So these ten men were standing afar off, and they called to Jesus And in verse 13, we see what they call to him to say. They lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They call out to Jesus by name, and then they call him Master. This word is one used only in the book of Luke, and it's used only six times. Every other time it's used, with the exception of this one, it is a disciple speaking unto Jesus, calling him Master. And yet here we have these 10 men calling him this same idea. It means appointee over or a commander or a supervisor and overseer. The point of the word was to acknowledge their faith that Jesus had power over their condition and that Jesus could heal them, that he is the master. And so he has power not just over them, but over the leprosy which was ravaging their bodies. But notice what it is that they specifically pray for. I give you the second word there in the Greek. I didn't highlight it, but it's the word mercy there. They ask for mercy. Have mercy on us. At Legacy Baptist Church, we define mercy in a spiritual sense as unmerited pardon, not being given something that we deserve. In this sense, there's perhaps a little something more for it. It's a cry for help. Not necessarily for pardon, but to still be given something that they don't deserve in that they don't deserve healing. It's not something they're entitled to, and yet they're asking for it anyway. 
I love that they ask for mercy and not grace here as we distinguish between the two. Grace is unmerited favor, being given something you don't deserve. That would be perhaps more natural. But by calling out for mercy, do you see what they're doing? They're acknowledging their sinful state. They're acknowledging their wretched state. They're acknowledging that what they need is for Jesus' mercy to come upon them, not just for Jesus' grace to come upon them. There's undoubtedly some spiritual acknowledgement here as well, drawn directly from the fact that they ask for mercy from him. So their cry is an acknowledgement that Jesus can do something about their condition and that they need Jesus to do something about their condition. They say, Master, but also that Jesus has every right not to do anything about their condition. Have mercy upon us. Verse 14. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go, show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. The way Jesus chooses to heal them here, I think, is, is very exciting. It's somewhat intriguing as well. It is a wonderful picture of the concept of, of believing faith. Jesus saw them, lepers afar off. They're calling him master, expressing confidence that he can heal them and asking him to do so. They have full confidence in him. They are unwavering in this confidence. They are crying out for mercy. And Jesus, of course, desires to give it. And he says unto them, perhaps calls unto them, go show yourself to the priests. Now, before we can understand why this is so significant, we need to understand why it was that Jesus would tell them to go to the priests, what this means culturally. Then we'll break down why it's so interesting, why it's so, so exciting. The law actually had quite a bit to say about leprosy. Why this particular disease was such a focus of the law is not necessarily known. We would recognize leprosy to be a very uh, good picture of sin in the heart of a man, in the spirit of a man, that it eats away at a man, that it destroys a man, that it is incurable uh, from, the, uh, fr from society that is around him. And yet, except the fact that it's contagious and there was no cure, we really don't see why this particular disease was pointed out. It would have been more prevalent in those days, certainly because of sanitation and such. But in Leviticus 13, we see a great deal of text devoted to leprosy. And we read about the process of somebody being diagnosed, being outcast, and then being um, verified as clean if his leprosy were to be healed. So in Leviticus chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, we, re we read this. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, saying, When a man shall have in his skin of his flesh a rising, a scab, or a bright spot, and it be in the skin of his flesh like the plague of leprosy, then he shall be brought unto Aaron the priest, or unto one of his sons the priest, and the priest shall look on the plague in the skin of the flesh. And when the hair in the plague is turned white and the plague in sight be deeper than the skin of his flesh, it is a plague of leprosy and the priest shall look on him and pronounce him unclean. So by the standard of the law, when there was a skin infection uh, that doesn't go away, when there are lesions on the skin, some infection and it's not going away and it looked like leprosy, they would go to the priest to have it looked at, to have it checked out. And the priest would look at the skin 
in and they would look for two particular things in these open wounds. First, they would look for whether or not uh, the, the, the wound was down below the skin level, right? As if the infection was eating away at the flesh itself. Then they would look for whether or not the hairs inside of that lesion were white, that they had gone white. And if both of those were the case, they would be pronounced as unclean. They had leprosy. Now, as the chapter continues, there are various tests. If this is, if this is true, but that's not true, then send them away for seven days, then bring them back again. If this is true, you know, all of those different tests uh, to prove whether or not a person was unclean with leprosy or whether they just had some sort of other infection and then they could be pronounced clean. Now, when a man or a woman was actually declared to have leprosy, their fate is described in verses 45 and 46 of Leviticus 13. Notice how much we skip there. There's a lot of stuff going on here, right? All of that, all of the previous was about leprosy too. The Bible says, and the leper in whom the plague is, his clothes shall be rent and his head bare, and he shall put a covering on upon his upper lip and shall cry unclean, unclean, all the days wherein the plague shall be on him, he shall be defiled. In him he shall be defiled. He is unclean, and he shall dwell alone without the camp, shall his habitation be. He would go into mourning. All the days of his life would be spent in mourning. If anyone was to come up to him, he would start yelling, unclean, unclean, and he would cover himself from them. He would be made an outcast of society for the rest of his life. He would live the rest of his days alone with the only companions of his to be other lepers. What a terrible way to live. Alone and outcast from your society. And indeed, throughout the Old Testament, we only have one account of leprosy being cured. Throughout the entire Old Testament, the only account was Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5, a Syrian general who heard of Elisha the prophet from a little girl who they'd taken captive of Israel in his homeland. And Naaman goes to Elisha and asks for healing. And through a process, Elisha um, gives him by faith, he needs to dip in the Jordan and such. He is healed of his leprosy, the Bible says. That being said, there was indeed a law written for the procedure that would take place if the leper was ever seemingly cured from this incurable disease. Naaman would not have used this procedure of cleansing for himself because he was not a Jew. So he would not have gone into the temple, shown himself to the priest. After he was cleansed, he went up to Syria, lived out his days, right? Which means that it's quite possible that these laws in Leviticus 13 existed almost entirely for the days of the time of Jesus when he would cure men of leprosy. Now the process itself is a bit long. The cleansing process, uh, what the rituals that they went through to see a person cleansed. So I guess Miriam as well, right? Uh, that just popped into my mind. Miriam had leprosy divinely given and divinely taken away quite quickly as well, right? Um, uh, there in, in uh, uh, Numbers, I believe it would be. So my apologies for forgetting about that one. The process 
we find in Luke 14, or Leviticus 14, excuse me, as far as the rituals for cleansing. In Leviticus 14, the Bible says this, the Lord spake unto Moses saying, this shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought unto the priest and the priest shall go forth out of the camp and the priest shall look and behold, if the plague of leprosy be healed in the leper, then shall the priest command to take for him that is to be cleansed two birds alive and clean and cedar wood and scarlet and hyssop. And the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed in an earthen vessel over running water. As for the living bird, he shall take it and the cedar wood and the scarlet and the hyssop and shall dip them in the living bird, uh, them and the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. And he shall sprinkle upon him that is to be cleansed from the leprosy seven times and he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird loose into the open field. So we have this unique practice here um, following the cleanse, uh, the, the, the recognition that a leper is cleansed to cleanse the rest of him. He would wash his clothes. He would shave all his hair off. He would wait seven days. He would shave his hair again. He would wash his clothes again. He would wash himself. He'd be declared clean. On the eighth day, he would present several more offerings, uh, rituals with the priest to be presented before the Lord as a way of initiating him back into the society before, so that he could then do sacrifices again. And that returns us to Luke chapter 17. All of this background. And we see them cry out for mercy to Jesus. And Jesus looks at them and says, Go, show yourselves unto the priests. Now, assuming they were all Jews and Samaritans, they all knew exactly what Jesus was telling them to do. Go to the priest and show them that you are clean. Here's the interesting part of that, though. They still had leprosy, right? They still had leprosy. Jesus says, go show yourself unto the priest. And if they were to lift their arms, if they could even do that at that point, and they were to look at themselves, they'd say, wait a minute, there are lesions all over me. Do we go to the priest even though we can objectively see that we are not cleansed? And so that's their decision. But in reality, the text says nothing about them looking at their hands or wondering at all. The Bible says that they went. And as they went, they were cleansed. As they went, after they had exercised the faith to turn and say, I have enough faith that Jesus will save me. I've cried out to him. I've called him master. I've asked him for mercy. I believe that he will do this for me. And when he says, go show yourself to the priest, they say, okay, if that's what I've got to do, I'm going to do it. And they turn to go. And the Bible says, as they went, they were cleansed. Faith always comes before blessing, doesn't it? That's the way we see all throughout the Bible. Faith always precedes blessing. If you want the blessings of God, you must first step out in faith and do it his way every time. And here's the miracle. As they went, they were cleansed. It's a wonderful picture of salvation. Believing the Lord can do it as we exercise our faith in him, as we place our full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, we are cleansed. It just takes a few words for Jesus 
to say, go show yourself to the priest. It just takes a few words of the text in verse 14 for it to tell us, and they were cleansed or they were cleansed. But let us never take for granted how amazing this miracle is. That 10 men who had at the time an incurable disease were immediately cured, flesh restored. Let us fight the temptation to take it for granted. Verses 15 and 16. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet. That would be Jesus' feet. Giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. There was a man who, finding he was healed, turned back toward Jesus and with a loud voice, the Bible says, began glorifying God and then eventually made his way to Jesus, it would seem, because the Bible says that this man fell down at Jesus' feet and gave him thanks. And then the text mentions something that would seemingly be out of place if we didn't know our history, and he was a Samaritan. The implication of this statement was that the others, at least in part, were not Samaritans, or not all of them were Samaritans, uh, or maybe they were, but it's just showing that this particular one was. We might understand the others to be Jews. We don't really know for sure. We can make some assumptions about what the rest of them were, but we would assume that this man being a Samaritan and the distinction being there, that there may have been at least probably were some Jews among them, these lepers. And in, in a moment, we'll see why this is just so important, why this distinction is mentioned. If we compare Scripture with Scripture, we know from John chapter 4 that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. They were not a people that were on good terms with each other. And as we look at history, it's no surprise as to why. I gave you a little bit of a history lesson from Leviticus 13 and 14 already. Now let me give you a little bit from the period that we call the intertestamental period, a period that's not well recorded uh, in our Bibles. A portion of it is in Daniel, but the majority of it uh, is not. The Samaritan people began in the 700s BC. This part is recorded in our scriptures. The Assyrians conquered the northern 10 tribes of Israel and subjugated them. The Assyrians were a brutal people. They were an advanced civilization for the day. And at that particular time, they had conquered a large portion of the Middle East of what we might call the known world. One of their distinctives, other than their brutality, was that when they conquered a people, they took those people out of the land and they put their own people into the land and they intermarried their people with the other people in order to break down cultural distinctives so that those people would not rebel. Well, this did not work very well for the Assyrians in the case of the Jews. We read about this in 2 Kings 17, beginning in verse 24. The Bible says this, and the king, or excuse me, of the Israelites, not the Jews. The Jews were the southern tribes. This is the Israelites, the northern tribes. And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kuthath, uh, Kutha and from Ava and from Hamath and from uh, Sepharvaim and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. And so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they feared not the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them which slew some of them. Wherefore they spake to the king of Assyria saying, the nations 
which thou hast removed and placed in the cities of Samaria, know not the manner of the gods of the land. Therefore he hath sent lions among them. And behold, they slay them because they know not the manner of the god of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Carry thither one of the priests whom ye brought from thence, and let them go dwell there, and let him teach them the manner of the god of the land. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came to dwell in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. How be it, every nation made gods of their own and put them in the houses of the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in their cities wherein they dwelt. So from history we know that the worship system of the northern tribes of Israel was already heavily compromised, all the way back to the beginning with the golden calf worship of Jeroboam. Uh, however, at the time, they still had a regard for an understanding of Messiah, for an understanding of, of God's plan for Israel. They were still children of Abraham. All of that was still in place. Well, when all of these other nations are taken and put into Samaria, nation, other, other areas that had been conquered by the Assyrians, uh, the, the, those nations worshipped false gods, and the Bible says God sent lions in to kill many of them. So they have lions that are just tearing up their people, and they say God, the God of this land is obviously angry with us. So they called for one of the priests of Samaria and had him come back and live in what was the religious center of Samaria, Bethel. It was was right on the border between Israel, northern Israel and southern Judah. And at Bethel, which was the first place that Jeroboam put a golden calf, the Bible says that this priest taught them how to fear the Lord. However, they didn't do a very good job of it. And the Bible says that each of these people still kept their own gods. And what we have here is, a, is a, an intermixing between the pagan gods of all of these lands that this, the Assyrians had brought in and the law of Moses and the promises of Messiah. We have a mixed religion here, a deeply pagan religion that had glimmers of Mosaic truth, of Old Testament truth. The Jews, therefore, saw these Samaritans, they were called, as half-breeds. The, the Samaritans said, we're still children of Abraham. We're still descended of Isaac and Jacob. We're descendants of the northern tribes of Israel. And the Jews said, yep, but you're unclean. You're mixed. We reject you. You have no right to be a part of what we are. You have no right worshiping in the temple. You may not do that. And so there was this tension between them. We read about this tension in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra with Sanballat and Tobiah, who were Samaritans, wanting to worship with the Jews. Well, that continued for many hundreds of years until the Israelites in the intertestamental period got their own, they, they became somewhat sovereign for a while. And one of, during one of these times of strength, the high priest who ruled over them at the time, a man named John Hyrcanus, in 113 B.C., began conquering the regions surrounding them. And one of the places that they conquered was Samaria. The, the um, history books tell us that the, the city of Samaria was totally destroyed by John Hyrcanus. And the inhabitants of Samaria, if they were not killed, were enslaved by the Jewish people. This created a deep animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. For years to come, 
Now we're looking at some 150 years after John Hyrcanus destroyed the Samaritan temple, destroyed the city of Samaria, and, and enslaved the people of Samaria. The people are back in their land. Mount Gerizim is their place of worship now. And they dislike the Jews as much as the Jews dislike them. And that's why at the end of verse 16 of Luke 17, it's important when the words and he was a Samaritan are mentioned. Because of all of the ten men that were healed, presumably some of them Jewish, only one man turned back to give thanks to the Jewish prophet. And it was the Samaritan. But this man, regardless of history and association, knew something cared only about one thing when he turned back and fell at the feet of this Jewish rabbi. He knew that he was a leper and now he's been cleansed. He knew that he was, he had a death sentence and now he has been saved. We read Jesus' final words as he speaks back to this man and to his disciples. Verses 17 through 19, the Bible says, and Jesus answering said, were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Jesus asks, Were there not ten cleansed just now? Where are the other nine? Why is only one man returned to give glory to God? And this one who has returned is perhaps the one who should hate Jesus the most. Jesus then looks at him and says, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. Jesus blessed the man for his humble praise and he sends him away cleansed. Now in my mind, perhaps in yours as well, this interaction has always left me with a little bit of conflict. First consider the facts as they stand. These 10 men all knew that they had a problem, right? They were all lepers. These 10 men cried out in faith to the master for healing. And as they did so, the master said, go show yourself to the, pri the, the priest. All 10 men responded in faith, didn't they? All 10 men turned to go to the priest and all 10 men received healing. So the noticeable and necessary results of their petition unto God were all the same. And not only that, but their faith was realized in their lives at the moment of obedience. When they obeyed, their faith became blessing. When they turned to show themselves to the priests, they were all made whole. I have a, a difficult time in my heart faulting any of these men for continuing on to the priest. I'm a bit of a, of a literalist myself. And if Jesus had told me, go show yourself to the priest, I think probably in my mind I would have been thinking, go show myself to the priest, 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 right? Go, 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 do what he said. You've been cleansed, go do what he said. And yet Jesus seems a bit confused that only one turned around to praise him. That only one man paused from his actions to return and worship him. That all having received healing, only one stopped to praise the healer. And from this interaction in the word of God, uh, I, I think the scriptures seek to give us an important perspective. 
All 10 of these men cried out unto God. All 10 of these men were indeed healed. Jesus never rebukes the other nine. Uh, of course, he couldn't rebuke. They ran off, but he couldn't. He didn't. He doesn't even rebuke them in, in, in statement to his disciples. He doesn't state that they necessarily did anything wrong. It seems that we aren't talking about an interaction where the nine did wrong and the one did right. It seems like we're looking at an interaction where the nine had faith, the, all ten had faith, the nine had an element of faith, but the tenth had something better. Thankfulness. Indeed, it was not only the faith of the Samaritan that made him whole. As far as the text seems to tell us, the faith of each man made him whole. But the Samaritan had a little something extra. He received praise of the Lord that the others did not when he turned to give praise unto the Lord. And this is what I would like us to consider in our application this evening. But before we do so, we need to mention once again how wonderful the picture is of salvation here. We all have a problem, don't we? And it's a problem that's deep-seated. And it's a problem that has many symptoms, but the symptoms are not the cause. The symptoms of the problem that we would call sin are all around us. Today, we, we, we heard just a few moments ago about the symptoms of this problem as a man uh, killed many other people in a church this morning. That's a symptom of a deeper problem. When we lie, when we cheat, when we steal... When we argue against one another, when we fight with each other, when we're dishonest, when all of these things take place, these are symptoms of a deeper problem. And that problem is a problem that we call sin. The things that we do are sins, and those are symptoms, but there's a disease within us called sin. And it's incurable by any of man's devices. Counseling can't cure the problem of sin. We, took, we partook in communion this evening. Communion cannot cure the problem of sin. Baptism cannot cure the problem of sin. There's a problem, and the problem, as we see it exemplified and typified, metaphorically so, in leprosy and in these ten men, was they had something that could not be cured save by the supernatural working of the Creator God. And so they cried out to the Creator God, and they said, have mercy upon us. And Jesus, turning said, go show yourself to the priest, and if they would but have the faith to turn and go, they would be healed. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God is holy, we are sinful, and our sin separates us from a holy God. We cannot get to heaven because the condition of heaven is perfection and we have sinned. Well, I'm not as much of a sinner as my neighbor. I'm not as much of a sinner as the people that I read about in the newspaper or the people on TV or the people in Washington or whatever you want to say. I'm not as much of a sinner as them. It doesn't matter because if you've fallen short of perfection, then you're already out. You've already fallen short of the glory of God. You are already separated from God. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, that because we are sinners, we have been separated from God. But here's the good news. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
that God sent his son Jesus Christ who is God the second person of the divine trinity to this earth that he lived upon this earth and he lived a perfect life he never once sinned he achieved the perfection which none of us have and the Bible says at the end of those years he was tried for sins he never committed he was beaten he was bruised he was scourged and he was hung upon a cross a brutal form of death and the Bible tells us that as the blood of Jesus Christ was shed, God took your sin and my sin. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He hath made Him, God the Father hath made Jesus Christ the Son to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. God took your sin and my sin and placed it on Jesus so that if we will but accept the gift, Jesus' righteousness could be placed upon us. And so if we will accept that gift, if we will believe in our hearts that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead, and that's the next part you need to know about. The Bible says Jesus did not stay dead, for indeed a dead Savior could do nothing for you. But three days later, the Bible says Jesus rose from the dead in victory over sin, in victory over the, the, the grave, and in doing so, he validated everything that he said he could do for us. Jesus says, because I live, you shall live also. And so whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. At the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible says that God removes your sin from you, breaks the chains of sin, gives you a new life in Christ. The Spirit of God indwells you, makes you a new creation, and you are reconciled unto the Father. If you've never done that, I would encourage you to make tonight the night that you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. However, the majority of us this evening are believers. And for us, what can we learn from this leper, these ten, particularly this one who returned to give glory to God? I mentioned already we are well on our way to a holiday that we call Thanksgiving. It is one of three historically Christian holidays on our calendar, all three having been primarily stripped of their Christian trappings in our culture today. However, all three still redounding to the glory of God as we allow them to do so in our lives, families, and church. And as we focus in on this time, I would like for us to consider the nature of the Samaritans' actions and how they relate first to the context and then to ourselves. Before we apply today, I'd like for us to consider this thought in the context of what we learned about last week. Remember last week, we learned about these two commands of Jesus, the first being to not offend a brother in Christ, not cause a stumbling block to be placed in front of him is what that means of his faith, and the second being that when somebody wrongs us, trespasses against us, we confront him, when they repent, that we forgive him, that we live in reconciliation and forgiveness one with another. The disciples, if you recall, hearing this in verse 5 said, Lord, increase our faith. They said, Jesus, this is next level stuff, and Jesus said, this isn't next level stuff. Jesus said in response to them, that if all you do in your entire Christian life is not place stumbling blocks of faith before the brother, the brethren, the disciples, and if you forgive and reconcile with 
one another. You are little more than an, uh, than an unprofitable servant. You have only done the basics. And then as we think about this teaching and what we see about this Samaritan, next, on the tail end of this teaching, we might wonder why it's in this context. Is Luke just slapping this story down because it's the next event chronologically and it doesn't really have any relation to anything else? Or is the disposition of this Samaritan in not just having faith, but having the faith to turn around and to show glory to God, is this a way for Luke to show a next level of Christian living? I believe that's what Luke is trying to show here. That the reasonable service of not placing stumbling blocks before the brethren, that the reasonable service of living in reconciliation and forgiveness one of another that we can take our Christian walk to the next level as we follow the example of this Samaritan in thanksgiving. And that's our first point of application this evening. Thanksgiving is a deliberate next step in your Christian walk. Thanksgiving is a deliberate next step in your Christian walk. Do you want to go beyond just doing the minimum in the Christian life? Beyond the, that, that, that minimum of faith whereby a man turns to be healed and runs to the priest, as Jesus said, and uh, you are healed. Well, one of the ten did that. He turned and he gave glory to God. Ten lepers had the faith to receive healing on that day. Only one had the faith to come back and thank God for it. It's interesting. We might call Thanksgiving a virtue of the Christian life. And yet when we consider the passages which generally teach us about those elements of faith that are produced in us as we yield to the Spirit of God, you never see Thanksgiving among them. Thanksgiving is not one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, is it? Love, joy, peace, Long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. It's not there. It's not in the list of virtues in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-8, through 8, where Peter tells us, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, um, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. Thanksgiving isn't on that list either. Nor is it in the Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, list of things that tribulation does for us, the steps of tribulation, we might call it. And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. It's not in that list either. Isn't it curious that none of these lists of Christian virtues describing elements of the Christian life which, if we submit to higher concepts, walking in the Spirit, abounding in the knowledge of Christ, submitting to the Lord in tribulation, will produce in us great virtues, and thanksgiving is not in any of those lists. What's interesting about thanksgiving is every time we consider thanksgiving in the scriptures, it is not something that is produced in us. It's something that we are called to deliberately engage in. It is a command. It's an act of the will. It's a step of volition. It's a determination in the Christian life. 
It's not a product, in, 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 uh, and, and, and listen to the phrase, let's parse it out carefully. Thanksgiving is not a product of God working in you. It's a response to God working in you. Consider the commands to be thankful. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becoming saints. We're all saints, by the way. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are positionally holy. You are in Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ has covered you. You are a saint. Saints are not produced after death. Saints are not chosen. Saints are not produced by what you do in this life. Saints are produced by what you have accepted in Christ. That's what makes you a saint. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient. He says, put all of those things away. Get all those things out of your life and replace them, he says, but rather giving of thanks. Put off evil and rather be a thankful people. It's the next step. Colossians chapter 2, verse 7. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein, abounding in the faith, with thanksgiving. Colossians three fifteen and 17. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Colossians 4, verse 2, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Do you see how deliberate thanksgiving is every time? Do you see how deliberate the call is for us to be a thankful people? 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. It is the will of God for you to choose in all things to give thanks. It's the next step. Hebrews 13, 15. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. The, Bi the Bible likens giving of thanks to the Lord as a sacrifice to God of sweet-smelling savor as we lift up our thanksgivings unto him. Thanksgiving is deliberate. God has done in his creation, in his sustaining power, in his redemptive work, in his faithful character, everything necessary to deserve your enduring praise, hasn't he? The question is simply, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, are you one of the nine or are you like the one? All 10 received on that day healing. One of them took the next step. One of them fell down at his feet before the Lord and praised God and gave him glory for what was done in him. Thanksgiving is a very special privilege of the redeemed that we can give thanks in all things. I've mentioned it many a Thanksgiving um, that Thanksgiving is a uniquely Christian capacity that outside of 
the knowledge and a relationship with the true and living God, thanksgiving becomes kind of a shallow affair, doesn't it? Who are we giving, who or what are we giving thanks to if it's not the creator God on that day? Am I eating a big turkey to thank myself, right? To thank my lucky stars, <laughs> to thank my hard work, my integrity, my work ethic, to thank my boss for that raise, Thanksgiving is a uniquely shallow event outside of a relationship with Creator God. But we who are in that relationship with Creator God know how much we have to be thankful for. And it's a next level thing to truly, genuinely turn and fall down back at the feet of the Savior and give praise to God for that which He has given to us. So how do we do this? Point number two, And our final point this evening. First point, thanksgiving is a deliberate next step in your Christian walk. Point number two, if you want to be more thankful, you need to, in quotes here, become the most needy. One of the interesting things about thanksgiving as we see it in scriptures is that we see it come out most in the lives of those who who had the most to lose, who received the most mercy Thanksgiving is an outworking of thanks, thankfulness, right? Fancy that. That's not a very profound statement. Thanks, thankfulness comes from a keen understanding of what you have gained or a keen understanding of what you wouldn't have or wouldn't be outside of God. It's not a stretch for me to say that often in our church, the most thankful are the most needy. That often the most thankful, physically speaking, are those who lack the resources, Right? Or are those who are sick? The ones that are most thankful to be able to get out of the bed in the morning are the ones who don't take it for granted because they know that they may not get out of bed the next morning. The ones who are most thankful for the meal that's in front of them are the ones who might not have a meal in front of them next time, right? The one who is most thankful for the clothes on their back are, for, are the ones who have known what it is not to have clothes on their back. The blind man, the lame man, the deaf deaf man perhaps understands better how precious life is because he's been asked to live with a handicap, whereas the rest of us take these things for granted. Often the most thankful spiritually are those which we would call first-generation Christians, called out of the world who understand what they came from and just what God has redeemed them from. Often the most thankful among us are those former murderers, those former drunkards, those former thieves. They perhaps understand better how precious redemption is because they've experienced the ravaging destructions of sin. Whereas the believer who has lived in a Christian home, a moral home, might be more tempted to take that redemption for granted, huh? But it doesn't have to be this way, does it? The person who has, who's never lacked anything physical, who has never missed a meal, who has always had clothes on their back, can be just as thankful as the one who has experienced lack if they see things in the proper perspective. The Christian who has never suffered the ravages of sin can be just as thankful for redemption if they have the proper perspective. And through such a perspective, our thanksgiving can be just as strong. 
Paul called himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, the chief of sinners. Paul was a man who certainly, the days before his redemption, uh, was consenting to murder and a blasphemer. He had persecuted the church of God. He has perhaps more of a reason in that sense to call himself a chief of sinners. He was a first-generation Christian, as they all were in that generation, right? And so in many ways... The contrast may not go quite parallel to what I'd call a second or third generation Christian today. We studied some time ago in Luke 7 about a woman who came in the house of Simon the Pharisee to anoint the feet of Jesus. And Jesus painted a contrast between this woman of ill repute, she was most likely a prostitute in that city, who knelt at the feet of Jesus and was washing his feet with her tears with the Pharisee who had invited him over for a meal, the man of moral excellence who was judging this woman for being a prostitute. The Pharisee, though he had every moral advantage, took for granted the presence of God in his home. This Pharisee, though he understood God's law, failed to glorify the one who had come to embody and fulfill it. This woman, on the other hand, though she had lost years by the ravages of sin and immorality, spent all that she had to praise God. Broke the alabaster box of ointments over his head, washed his feet with her tears. Possibly her entire life savings spent in praise unto God on that day. And this woman, though she was nothing in the eyes of men, was yet glorified to the fullest by God to the extent where today, 2,000 years later, we're still preaching her example. So Jesus would tell the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7, verse 47, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Do you want to love God more? Do you want to thank God more? Recognize how much you've been forgiven. It doesn't matter if you, if you have been spared from all of the moral indecencies of this life because you've been saved at a young age, young people, second generation, third generation Christians in this room. Praise God for that. Don't regret the fact that you've been saved from all that. That's a blessing But if that blessing causes you by proxy to fail to thank the Lord, to take for granted your redemption, then you're missing something. And we need to reorient our minds to recognize that the blackness in our hearts is just, was just as deep, though we may have been five or six years old and come from a moral home and lived a moral life, the sin disease, we may not have had as many lesions on our skin, but the leprosy was there, wasn't it? And we needed just as much healing on the day we accepted Jesus Christ, second and third generation Christians, as the one who had been ravaged to the point of disfigurement. The healing necessity was the same. The sin is the same. The potential is the same. It's sin. The leper who returned to praise God was a Samaritan, a sworn enemy of the Jews an outcast of his society and Jewish society outside of the lost sheep of Israel. 
He had the faith to be healed, as did the other nine, but in recognition of the depths of his estrangement from God and the glory of his redemption, there was a kernel of praise which had eluded the other nine men for some reason. There was something deeper in this man's heart, maybe because he was the most distant from Jesus because he was a Samaritan. Maybe it was because before that time when Jesus healed him, maybe to that day that Samaritan had never once thought or spoken a kind word about a Jew in his life. And then he had cried out to a Jew on this day and said, Master, you are God, you are Messiah, heal me. And he had healed him in his mercy. And he who was forgiven most loved most on that day. And the question for us this evening is, who are we in this account? Are we the leper who, whether we have grown up in a Christian home or not, whether we have been spared the ravages of sin or not, do we recognize the depths of God's mercy upon us physically, spiritually, and so we have dedicated our hearts to offering up that praise that God so deeply desires and deserves? Are we the one of the ten who rejects the temptation to take for granted our cleansing and instead stops to turn and to fall down at the feet of Jesus in thanksgiving. Are you a thankful person? That's really the question. Are you a thankful person? Or are we one of the other nine? Still with faith, still receiving cleansing, yet somehow in some way forgetting to turn and give glory to the one who gave it. And so through our negligence, lacking perhaps the blessings which only thanksgiving can provide. What blessings come through thanksgiving? Let me just give you a brief rundown. Philippians 4, 6 and 8 tells us that the peace of God that passes all understanding comes as we are prayerfully thankful. Thankfully prayerful. Both. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 15 tells us that God's grace recognized in our lives through thanksgiving redounds unto the glory of God in the lives of ourselves and others. Colossians 2, 7 tells us that our faith abounds when we are thankful. And so it is that last week in Luke chapter 17, verse 5, we read as the disciples prayed to Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. And this week we learn about how we can take it to the next level. And we can take it to the next level through deliberate thanksgiving, volitional praise, a free will offering unto the Lord. Let's close in prayer.